You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, can we all agree that life can get messy? Can we agree that parenting can be messy? Yeah, we didn't get so loud there. (laughs) Well, parenting can be messy whichever side of that equation you're on, whether you're the parent or the kid, right? Uh, It's challenging. Uh, Stewarding the lives of others. There's nothing that surfaces our weaknesses more, in my mind, than those moments when you realize you're in charge of the outcomes of some other people. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a coach, a babysitter, a section leader in the high school band, as soon as you have that realization that the outcomes of the people around me are kind of my responsibility, that's a weight, right? So listen, uh, we're talking about two famous dads today, and it'd be really easy for uh, we to, us to go into the dad zone at church where dads get beat up, mom's going to go like this, and the kids all tune out, Right? Uh, but let me just say, anybody in the room, you need to understand whether you're, whether you're 10 years old or uh, 90, that if you don't get this yet, understand that at some point in your life, you're going to be in a position where you're responsible for the outcomes of other people. You're going to be stewarding the lives of other people, right? And again, I'll say it, nothing exposes our inner weaknesses, our real the cracks in who we are, like those times when we are stewarding the lives of other people. And so uh, we've been in a series uh, called The Five Days of Christmas. And uh, today we're talking about two famous dads, but we've been in a process of unpacking the genealogy of Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, you, you'll want to open it to Matthew chapter one. What you'll see as we unpack this series is that we've, we've talked about five golden kings, four errant girls, uh, three different eras. Today we're talking about two famous dads. Uh, we're going to unpack that. And next week, Pastor Denny's going to bring it home as we s- fly into Christmas uh, with a babe in a genealogy. And, you know, what we want you to see so much is how uh, this genealogy is just funneling so much incredible data, so much incredible content and reality toward this one named Jesus. Uh, it's, it's, it's really cool stuff. And so there's two big thoughts we've been trying to uh, help you to see through this series. And the first is that genealogies often seem boring, right? Uh, you run into those lists of names in the Old Testament and here in the New Testament and your eyes want to roll back and you feel, <laughs> you feel like that's probably as boring to write as it is to read, right? But what we want you to understand is that if you get up close, if you warm up to it, if you spend time with it, if you sink your teeth into it, you find that these genealogies are, provide some incredible, some wonderful insights uh, that can be really life-changing. And I'll tell you, that's not even just true of genealogies. I've found that that's true of Scripture in general. That if I will just slow down and stop acting like I already know it, right? If I start treating Scripture the way I've learned I need to treat my wife, Stop acting like you already know it. Slow down. Listen. Right? Uh, Man, incredible things happen. A deeper sense of the truth has a way of sinking in. And so that's what we're trying to do through this series is help you understand that even this genealogy is just packed with value for each of us. And the second thing is that Jesus was born of the perfect line to be the king and Messiah. This is a conversation about Jesus. All of it. No matter how far afield we get, we're fundamentally talking about Jesus because that's what Matthew's doing in this genealogy. And and, and the idea here is that it's going to strengthen our faith. Got it? 
Okay, so that's the series we're in. If this is your first time here, welcome. That's where we've been. And that's why we're talking about the Matthews genealogy. And we're going to focus today specifically on two famous dads. Um, and what we're going to see is that while Abraham and David, the two dads we're going to focus on, are rightly revered. I mean, we have a, a ton of good reasons to truly revere these guys. While they're rightly revered, um, their success as dads is not one of the reasons for revering them. When you look at their stories, the way scripture presents them, there's a ton of reason for you and me to have genuine respect, to aspire to be like these men, absolutely. But when you look at their narratives through the lens of a dad, it's actually a completely different animal. And this, neither of their texts are designed to, to focus in specifically on dadhood, but you can't miss it. There's a lot the texts end up communicating through what they say and what they don't say about the reality of these two human beings. These men who breathe just like in us, us in the room. These men who had flaws and weaknesses and strengths that when it came to being a dad, uh, man, it's, it's pretty grim conversation. It's a challenging conversation, one that I can actually relate to. Because being a dad is tough. But again, this is not just a conversation for dads, it's a conversation for all of us who are put in a position where we're stewarding the lives of other people. And so Abraham and David have a lot to teach us about our weakness and what we do with that. Does that sound interesting? Okay, I hope so, because that's what we're gonna talk about for a while. <laughs> All right. Well, I just wanna point out a couple big things about these two famous dads. First, the stories of Abraham and David, they teach us this, that our heavenly father is faithful to work through us despite our weaknesses. I think that's one of the main reasons you see Abraham and David in this genealogy. There's a lot of good reasons, theological, historical, but on the personal side, as you read this genealogy and you see these names, without diminishing the theological and historical reality of these two men, I think Matthew wants us to see the reality of these guys' weaknesses as it informs the way we think about what God's doing by sending Jesus, okay? And the second thing is this, that by framing the genealogy around Abraham and David, Matthew demonstrates that the story of Jesus is where humanity's weakness meets God's faithfulness. I think that's sort of the, one of the personal elements of this text, this genealogy, is I, I think Matthew wants us to feel the weakness of these guys in our own and to watch those things just funnel down toward the strength and the faithfulness that's represented in Jesus Christ, the solution to our weakness. Got it? So that's what we're after. So Matthew 1.1, you see very clearly, these, like, this isn't just the beginning of the genealogy. This is the beginning of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Two big names. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Two big names that should frame the rest of the conversation of the book of Matthew. Got it? All right. So let's unpack these guys, all right? And we're going to look at uh, David and Abraham through the lens of their being dads. And so we're going to look at them through the lens of weakness because that's the reality of how the Bible describes them as dads. So when we're talking about Abraham, you gotta understand this, uh, the key word for Abraham's story as a dad is complicated. Can anyone relate to that word when it comes to being a parent or a leader? It's complicated, man. And that's, that's Abraham, okay? Again, a thousand reasons to revere this guy. But when you get into the story of Hagar and Ishmael, all right, uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah uh, have been struggling 
uh, to have children for their entire lives. And when you get into the story of how they begin to move through that and re- try to resolve that for themselves, what you're gonna see about Abraham as a dad is he's passive, but he's compassionate. The text makes this really clear. If you just read carefully and just watch him as a dad, you're gonna see Abraham, for all of his strength, as a dad and as a husband, really pretty passive at this point, but compassionate. It's complicated. So uh, God, uh, Abraham and, and Sarah, they struggled with infertility, but God had promised them a legitimate child, right? That, that this miracle baby. And they're well past the age of giving birth. And so after a while, they're like, yeah, God promised, maybe we should take matters into our own hands. And so they do something that is culturally allowed at the time. All right, don't, don't throw stones. We have our own cultural weirdness. Culturally allowed at the time. The issue, uh, though, is that it's, it's taking matters into their own hand. It was a faithless move. So what they do is they take one of Sarah's servants, an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar, and they say, okay, Abraham, I want you to have a kid by way of her so that we can have this son, okay? Um, it's a, the trouble in scripture is that it's a faithless move. It's a move without trust. And it's Sarah's idea, and you shouldn't think less of her because of that. It was the normal thing to do at the time, but Abraham kind of passively goes with it, Right? And so they have a son named Ishmael by way of Hagar. And what starts happening is, oh man, uh, Sarah and Hagar start kind of throwing hands. They're just not getting along because Hagar now is kind of like, I'm the one with the child and wants the honor. Sarah's not having it and it gets ugly. And eventually Sarah says, hey, you need to get them out of here once God gives them their, their son, Isaac, their legitimate son. He gives them a miracle baby. Sarah's like, we've got the baby. We don't need them anymore. Let's eject them from the house. For most of us, it's a familiar story. I just want those who have not heard it to hear. That's, this, is, this is Bible, man. This is real. God doesn't back down from the awkward, complicated realities of life in his word. And so what you see is Abraham going with that for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I want you to see Genesis 21, 11, what, he, what it says about Abraham. It says, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. So he's passive through this whole story. They've kind of painted themselves into this awkward parenting corner Abraham in his passivity has found himself in this spot, but he cares deeply for his son, Ishmael. Can you see it? It's complicated. You ever been in a complicated parenting scenario where you've painted yourself into a corner because of passivity? You care, but it's complicated. Anyone? I have. This is a moment I can relate to when it comes to that challenge of passivity and compassion colliding. As you go on, so they have this, this miracle baby, Isaac, and so here's the scenario, right? You've got this older couple who have, finally have their miracle baby. How do you think they're treating this baby? Man, if he skins his knee, we're losing our minds, right? This is a very protective, this is just set up to be a very protective situation, right? And what you see as Isaac develops, Scripture's not very kind to Isaac, uh, because he, as he develops, you can see very clearly this connection between the outcome of what he becomes and sort of the situation of parents who are hyper-protective of this kid. So what you're going to see with Abraham and Isaac's story, and again, you've you, you got to pay attention to the whole story in the big picture of what's being said what's not being said in the text as you read his story in Genesis 21 through 25. And, and Isaac is, I would say, arguably the product of a dad who's overprotective but very affectionate. As he gets on in, a, in years, uh, they decide, mom and dad, that they need to find him a wife. And all the ladies' hearts fluttered when they hear about a guy who's marrying the woman their mom and dad went and found for him, right? 
I mean, think about his son who went and worked seven years for the woman of his dreams, right? Isaac sits at home and waits for mom and dad to bring a wife home to him. Can you see it? It's not obvious, but it's there. And what's hilarious is when they finally meet. Abraham and Sarah's servant brings, uh, bring, brings his future wife home and Genesis 24, 63 says, uh, Isaac, he went out into the field in the evening to, to meditate. The scripture's being a little kind here. That's a euphemism for going to the bathroom. So, so Isaac went out in the field to go to the bathroom and as he looks up, he sees camels coming. Right? This is just a stunning image of a manly, tough, awesome, respectable man, right? He looks up, sees camels approaching, and Rebecca looked up and saw Isaac. That's how they met. A little bit awkward, huh? And this is how impressive of a specimen this guy is. She looks and she sees this guy in the field being awkward, and he looks, she looks at the servant and says, who's that man coming to meet us? Like, who's that guy? She's not even wearing her veil in the text. And the servant's like, ah, that's my master's son who you're marrying. And you see her, boop throw the, she's like, oh, and, and the, what the text wants you to see is like, there was nothing about him that screamed, oh, this is the man you're going to marry. There's nothing respectable about him in that moment. Can you see it? And if it's not plain, it just, as you go on in the text, you see that verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. They got married. He brought her into the tent of his mom, his mom's tent. That's a weird way of saying it. You don't see that in the scripture much. It's always dad's property. It's, it's father to son. Here it's mom, 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 mom. And look at how it's just, he describes, he's described, so uh, she became his wife, he loved her, and Isaac was, this is the summary statement, he was comforted after his mother's death. Lady, do you, ladies, do you just feel so uh, energized by a man who gets married, looks at his wife and says, oh, you're such a great replacement for my mom. <laughs> you get it? And I'm not trying to beat on these guys, I got plenty of my own garbage we could unpack, Right? But what I want you to see the text is doing is it's begging the question, where's dad? Where's the influence, the leadership, the modeling, the strength of a dad, of a man being conveyed to his son? Where is that? In Abraham's story as a dad, it's complicated. It's complicated. You just don't see it. Maybe, it's, maybe it was true in his life, but the scripture gives us an image of Abraham as a dad that's, that's complicated. And, can, and I can relate. I can relate to 100 situations I wish I could get back, 100 opportunities to dad better that I didn't do. I can relate to passivity in my time as a dad. I can, as a man, as a leader. I can relate to that. I can relate to the fact that I really am compassionate. I love my kids a ton, but man, when that collides with my weaknesses, it gets complicated. Is it just me? Okay. So we learn from the story of Abraham in this genealogy that he's, he's in the story to remind us of all that's good about him, but also his weakness as it collides with Christ. So much for Abraham. How about David? David, as a dad, his story is catastrophic. When you look at the, the downflow of his experience as a dad, it's just pure catastrophe, one heaped on top of another. David's so challenging because he, he's incredible. I mean, he gave us the Psalms. He's so strong. He's, he loved God passionately. There's so much good to say about David. But you watch that start so strong as a young man. Students in the room, hear me. David's best years were when he was a high schooler, a college-age single, right? And he comes in and he just has this dramatic impact on the world. But man, he starts collecting brides 
you know, and you watch him just, his story just kind of evens out and then starts to plummet by the end. Especially when you watch then the kids come in and you watch him trying to relate to his home. The root of his catastrophe is his, is that space in which he's trying or failing to try to be a dad. Let me tell you about Amnon and Tamar, two of his kids. He has multiple wives, Amnon and Tamar are uh, half-brother and sister living in his household. And Amnon, in the end, uh, ended up taking advantage of Tamar in the worst possible way. She was absolutely a victim of a guy who was absolutely lost in his own lust and desires, and he took advantage of her in the worst possible way. And the way the text treats it is just this crazy silence about David. He's nowhere. So this story, what you see of David is a complete detachment. And where he shows up briefly, it's just this strong reaction. So he's detached and he's reactive. And David's detachment allowed his home to be a place where his daughter was fundamentally unsafe. Now, before I go any further, I would imagine there are some stories in this room or if you're listening online, I would imagine there's some stories where automatically you go, your alarm bells will go off and say, oh no, he's talking about me because this happened in my family or this happened to me. And can I just say, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about a very specific situation that the scripture makes clear. This is a David story. Things happen to us no matter how good we are as parents. They do. So if you're hearing that you need to suddenly feel terrible about something that happened in your family, then you're not hearing what I'm trying to convey. We clear? Okay. But in David's story, what the text makes so palpable is this, this catastrophe is happening, and he's just nowhere. He's nowhere. And so his household is, is an unsafe place for his children. And when he shows up in this story, his response was intense and fleeting. And it failed to bring about any restoration for anyone. Text says, when King David heard of all of this, he was furious. Cool. He was mad. And on some one level, you'd say, well, rightly, you know. And if you're trained to love everything about David and ignore all of his weakness, maybe you'd see that as a strength. But if you read the text, that's it. What's conspicuous about this, te conspicuous about this text is that it says nothing else. He's furious. And then it moves on to more catastrophe. Kind of this awkward silence. He, there's nothing about him moving in and bringing restoration to Tamar. There's nothing in there about him moving in and trying to disciple the heart and like bring justice, bring clarity, bring safety, bring structure. What he's doing so clearly for his kingdom doesn't seem to be happening in his home. You been there, guys? Ladies, have you been there? Your professional self, all that energy doesn't seem to translate home? I've been there at times in my life. And that's what I see in David. And the downflow of that is the next story of Absalom, Tamar's full brother, who's understandably irate and frustrated, and he turns away from God on so many levels and just internalizes his bitterness. And, and apparently there's no David there to shepherd his heart, to engage, to demonstrate, hey, there's a better way. That wisdom of David doesn't seem to get to Absalom until it's way too late. 
And so Absalom ends up plotting over the years to overthrow the kingdom in this mass binge of revenge and anger. And that's really defining for the rest of the story of David to the point where David's kingdom is almost overthrown except for the faithfulness of God protecting his people, not necessarily even David. Protecting his people in his name, he rescues King David uh, from Absalom's attempt at overthrow. What you see that whole story is that David is passive and disoriented. Completely passive and disoriented in the face of Absalom. He's just retreating constantly. Physically and metaphorically retreating and, and disoriented. 2 Samuel 19.4 tells us after God rescued the kingdom by, and Absalom was killed, David covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Which again, on the surface, you know, if you're used to thinking about David as perfect and without flaw, that can seem admirable. And yeah, it's admirable he cares about his son, even though his son hated, hated him. Like, that's admirable. But look at what the text goes on to say. Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters. You have other sons and daughters who didn't try to kill you. You have people who have loved you and you're fixated, you're distracted, you're disoriented, and you're detached from reality here, David. It's not a good look for him to the point where the people who are close to him throw their hands up and say, it seems like you just love the people who hate you and hate the people who love you. Again, this is, we're not canceling David. <laughs> David's incredible on so many levels, but he's complicated. And, and as a dad, his story is one of catastrophe. Can you see it? Can you relate? Can we put our Jesus mask off and, and like be real for a second and admit that we can, a lot of us can relate to real catastrophe around us as parents, as leaders, as stewards of others? Jesus, this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, two complicated, broken, weak men who needed God's faithfulness. Can you see it? Speaking of God's faithfulness, there's a couple things I want you to see. That's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time together talking. I want you to see this, that despite their weakness, God leveraged Abraham's faith and David's love to bring blessing to the whole world through them in the form of unconditional covenants. There's a lot of words there. Just pause for a second, hear what I'm saying. As broken, as complicated, as catastrophic, as weak as these, these men's stories are, as dads, God used them dramatically. He worked through them, despite all of that. As much as I can relate to their stories on so many levels, I need to also be able to relate to the fact that that doesn't cancel me. That doesn't cancel you. When our weakness collides with God's faithfulness, wild things can happen. He leveraged their faith and their love to bring blessing to the whole world through them in the form of unconditional covenants. What do I mean by unconditional covenants? Well, if you don't know, Biblically speaking, if you're reading your Bible, you've got to understand that everything hangs on, on these promises that God made to his people. And that's partly why you see David and Abraham, aside from the personal side, the theological side you need to understand about them and the genealogy is that they represent these two massive history-altering covenants that God made to his people through them. 
God worked through them in some big ways. So first with Abraham, we call this promise the the Abrahamic covenant, this unconditional promise that God made to the world via Abraham. And the promise was that Abraham's lineage would produce blessing for all nations. Blessing for all nations. And I know that's not a word we use often that should carry a lot of weight in our our mind typically, but that's a word that carries a ton of weight because that blessing ultimately is the Jesus we see at the end of the genealogy. So in his weakness as a dad, in his broken flaws, God still finds a way to promise and to to execute this world-changing blessing of Christ by way of Abraham. Genesis 12, 2, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus, that's what you should see in that phrase. Via Abraham, Jesus, the solution to our weakness. See, listen, Abraham's simple faith in his heavenly father was the root of every positive step in his life. And there's a ton of positive steps if you read his narrative in Genesis. If you look though, every positive step is rooted in this faith. That faith, that's, that's why we revere Abraham. Because God worked through him and leveraged these, these, this incredible faith. God asked him to do some things that are insane and he did them because he trusted God, right? And God leveraged that for all of us, despite his weakness. He leveraged Abraham's faith despite his weakness. David, the, the promise that God made to David, we call it, wait for it, the Davidic covenant. I know, right? Very complicated stuff. We call it the Davidic covenant. And God's promise to, uh, to the world through David was that his lineage would produce an eternal king who would bring absolute justice, an eternal king. And God says, I will establish his kingdom. This is a God's guy king. This is a king that's gonna execute absolute justice. 2 Samuel 7, 12, where God makes this covenant with David, he says, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Is he talking about Solomon? Yes. Is he talking about more than Solomon? Absolutely. He's looking right through Solomon, right down this complicated lineage that we see in the genealogy to Jesus, the ultimate king who would bring ultimate justice, that God would establish a kingdom of justice through him forever. You see it? Broken dad Abraham, broken dad David. You look through them and you see God's faithfulness meeting their weakness and incredible things are coming downstream of these guys' experiences. It was David's passionate love for his heavenly father. It was rooted in every positive step in his life where David, where Abraham, his faith was rooted in every positive step. If you read David's whole story, it's a long one. First and second Samuel. If you look through the Psalms, you see that every positive thing that happened in David's life was rooted in this simple, sincere, passionate love for his heavenly father. Great reason to respect that man, to pursue living as he lived on so many levels, despite his weakness. Both Christ's genealogy and all of biblical history are framed by these two covenants, these promises. Again, that's why they're in the structure of this genealogy. They're promises that pointed through two imperfect men toward one perfect savior who would finally bring absolute blessing and justice to the world. Do you know that weakness we can relate to? All those dad moments I wish I could get back and redo? All of that, 
that struggle, that pain that you and I are experiencing as people around whom hard things have happened in our, in our families, in our workplaces, when we have been challenged with the, the challenge of stewarding other people. All of that meets the faithfulness of God in the person of Jesus. And God's faithfulness can do incredible things despite our baggage, despite our background as parents, stewards, leaders. That's, I think, what we're seeing in these two famous dads in the text. Personally, if you look past the rest of why they're in there. So a couple lessons that I want to pull from all this, uh, that I'm trying to pull from this for myself, this whole conversation about these two complicated, catastrophic dads. First is this, as stewards of others, we admit our need. That's what a healthy right-thinking believer is doing when confronted with that moment of I'm stewarding the life of someone else, whether that's as a parent, a grandparent, a coach, a babysitter, a project leader in a high school project, an older sibling, right? When I'm confronted with the care of someone else, what the first thing a healthy person is gonna do is recognize (laughs) I need help, (laughs) I have a need here. The weakness of Abraham and David as dads in this text point us to our need for a savior, not an existential savior in concept and in religious structure so that I can think of myself as safe and going to heaven someday. All of that being true. But the kind of savior that like actually has direct impact on my right now moment, the kind of savior that shepherds my heart, my attitudes, my movements that, that in with his Holy spirit can actually help me be better in a given moment. If he's present, if I've invited him into the moment, are you following me? Not a conceptual savior, but a, but a real one right here, right now. I need to be in relationship with Jesus right now in this moment. If I'm going to steward someone's life well. That's what a healthy believer is going to pull from this. I have a need, and that need is Jesus. Okay? We will, listen, we will not steward the lives of others well without a right relationship with Jesus. You can get away with a lot for a long time, and then you can tell yourself you're doing fine. You can build a construct within which you are the successful parent because of whatever outcomes. But I'm telling you, when it comes to what really matters spiritually in the fabric of the spiritual reality that we live in, you will not, I will not, I cannot steward the life of another person well outside of a day-to-day ongoing dialogue in communion with Jesus. Got it? I have a need and I need to admit that need this holiday season, as I'm spending a lot more time around my girls, my daughters, once they get out of school, I'm shepherding their experience. I need Jesus, present tense, okay? And the second thing is that as stewards of others, we trust God to work through us. I can, be, I, can fall, I can, like anybody, fall into this insecurity, like, oh my gosh, I don't know how this is really gonna go. I, my track record with, in these scenarios is not good and I can buckle. Or, you know, some of us may have some intense baggage around your concept of success and failure as a parent or as a leader that has you just feeling like you're sidelined. 
and operating with this massive limp or incapacity as a leader. And what the text tells us as we look at Abraham and David is for all their weakness that ran into, but it ran into God's faithfulness. And God did things through these guys despite their baggage, their histories, their past and their weakness and their brokenness. You follow? So I need to admit my need, but I also need to recognize that big things can happen here. <laughs> like God is in play. So if I failed yesterday as a dad, that does not take me out of the game today. I can lean in and I can love the person next to me with power and confidence and compassion and love. And God can leverage that. He's done it over and over and over again. That's what scripture screams. As God's faithfulness to Abraham and David points to his ability to work through us as parents and stewards, he can do it. And he desires to. In Christ, we can lean in and we can love people we steward regardless of our failures. So what do we do with that, all right? I have some application for you, and I kind of threw, I'm going to throw a lot at you really fast, I know. So hang on. Uh, probably should have just done one here, but speaking of weakness, there's a, I kind of messed up your notes, all right? One, I think there's a few too many things, so take and leave what you want. Two, <laughs> we're actually going to go four, three, two, one instead of one, two, three, four. I got it in the wrong order. Fun, fun fact. So if you'll stick with me, we're going to start at number four on your application. And it's simply this. Pick one thing to work on. When, you, when, you, when you're thinking about this holiday season as a parent, as an as a influencer of others, right, as, a, as an older sibling or finishing out school well and leading other people in whatever organization you're a part of or at work, don't, I've learned don't, I can get so overwhelmed with all of my weaknesses just try to be better. <laughs> it doesn't go well. And so I'm learning I got to just focus in on one thing, right? Like, is it that I'm short under certain circumstances with my, with my tone? Okay, let's work on that. Is it that as soon as one daughter and another daughter start, you know, the temperature starts going up, the conflict gets going, and I'm just like, I just don't have it in me. And I want to go passive? All right, is that the pattern? Well, pick that. Let's work on that. Does that make sense? Just pick one thing. Don't try to tackle it all. Pick one thing. And in that thing, number two, or number three in your notes, invite others into your parenting or your leadership. Guys, buckle up. We're going to talk about community a lot going forward. Relationships a lot. And this is my moment to highlight that. If you're trying to do this on your own, it's not going to work. The spiritual life, the Christian life, is a communal life. It's a, it's a relational life. And so invite some other people into that conversation around what you're going to work on over the holidays. Make sense? Give them access. And second, devote daily. That's a phrase I use all the time to, to talk about spending daily time with Jesus. Whatever you can do, whatever that looks like, some daily time. Don't binge and purge and think that's going to work for you. It's not. Daily time. Bite-sized time with Jesus to remind yourself and invite him into that moment to be a present savior, not just an existential ultimate savior. Does that make sense? And I'm gonna challenge you over the holidays when you're most prone, we're all most prone to let it slide because we're just busy spending time with family doing good things, right? But it's when we need it the most, right? So let me challenge you to make sure you fight for even five minutes, fight to devote daily with Jesus as you try to tackle this one thing. And finally, what I'm working on, the phrase I'm using for myself this season is surrender the center. As it relates to the whole conversation about my weaknesses as a dad, as a man, as a husband, as a leader, 
What I'm trying, well, here's what I mean by that. Reminding myself that I'm weak, but God is faithful. That's what this whole conversation is about. What, I can get lost in my weakness and either try to hide it and, and, and ignore it or just get lost in it, right? What I'm trying to do is instead of that, working on this one thing, I'm trying to surrender the center. Here's what I mean. Those areas that I struggle in, that I'm failing in recently, right? That I feel weak in. I'm trying to identify those moments and say, what was at the center of that? What drove my response there? So I'll just tell you, for me, what I wrote in, uh, at the top of those two circles, if you're right on the left, my weakness, his faithfulness. What I'm trying to do is surrender the center and transition the center of those moments, the center of my motivation from my natural state to a state that's informed by scripture. And so what I wrote in my my weakness circle was overwhelm and passivity. I'm just gonna open up. Lately, as I've thought about this text for me, those moments that I wish I could have back as a dad, as a leader, what's happening lately is I have just hit these, I hit these points of overwhelm. There's just too much coming in. And when I get overwhelmed, what I'll tend to do is just go passive. Is it just me? Some people hit overwhelm and they go hyperactive. Me, I, I tend to go passive. And that's what's been at the center of things I wish I could get back lately for me. So let me encourage you at some point to think about that for you. When you're going off the rails, not doing what you want to do, what you wish you were doing as a parent, as a dad, as a leader, what's at the center? Write it down and admit it. And then what I'm doing is in the, his faithfulness circle, surrender the center. In those moments where I feel it coming, I'm trying to remember 2 Corinthians 12, 9. So I encourage you to write that down. Maybe for you it's a different verse, a different text. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says that God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When, that when your weakness collides with God's faithfulness, diff, something different can happen. So me trying to distill this whole conversation into my, after, my Sunday afternoon at home with my girls is me trying to become aware of those moments where I'm pulling a, dad, a David dad or an Abraham dad and I'm, it's not about to go well. I'm trying to become aware of it and in that moment I'm trying to take a deep breath and surrender the center. This is a time I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm about to go passive. No, in Christ, my weakness is gonna collide with his faithfulness. His strength is sufficient for me right now and I'm gonna to try to do this different. Does that make sense? That's my application for you.